Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy, and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is Tim Gurner, founder and CEO of Gurner Group. A quick note, Adrian recorded this episode from a rural location, so the audio quality is slightly compromised. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, this is Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, and welcome to another edition of Line of Credit. Today, I'm excited to be chatting with Tim Gurner from Gurner Properties. And welcome, Tim. Thanks, mate. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to good to have you. So, Tim, maybe just for our listeners, I'll let you give a little bit of background on yourself and Gurner Properties and what you've achieved over the last nine, ten years, but also maybe a little bit of history of what you were doing at Urban before that. So uh, thanks, Adrian. I'll try and keep it a little bit short for you. But so I guess for me, I've been extremely passionate about property since I was about 12. I remember my parents were doing a bit of landscaping with some bulldozers in the backyard and I faked a sickie for about 10 10 days in a row. And I think my mum switched on about day 10. But I was just sitting there just watching this incredible creation of taking like just this sparse land and turning it into something really beautiful. And I think ever since that day, I've been obsessed with creating things. And that's from businesses to developments to lobbies to whatever it is at the time. And so I started off, um, I did commerce at Melbourne Uni. I lived on campus at Queen's College for the first two years and then went part-time in my last year. I was a terrible student, Adrian, as you could probably imagine I was constantly impatient and wanting to do other things and I actually started with a guy called Tony Pride it was my first job in real estate and um, it was an amazing experience it taught me how to sell he taught me about marketing branding um, and I think without that experience with him I definitely wouldn't be where I am today obviously selling is a huge part of what we do in the business in terms of selling actual apartments but then obviously selling is also doing a deal with you it's doing a deal with a landowner or a partner or a joint venture partner so it's been a huge part of my life at the time I was living with this hippie in Brighton an amazing girl who's very different to me but I remember coming home like you do when you're 20 whinging about work saying oh my boss is this and that and I had to I was used to you know I remember I was walking the streets doing letterbox drops in real estate right trying to get listings and I'd do it for hours and hours and I'd get home whinging and she said, oh, well, what do you love to do? And I said, oh, I love the gym and I, I don't want to have a boss. And she said, oh, that's simple. You just start a gym. I'm like, what? And she says, oh, you've got to start your own business, start a gym. And it was like this light globe moment for me, which I think if that didn't happen, I'm not sure I would have ever been able to follow my passion. So that sort of gave me the opportunity to think outside the square. And then two weeks later, I started a gym in Elwood. I opened it, started construction, council turned up and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing a gym. She, they said, oh, you need a planning permit. You can't do that. I'm like, oh, that's not great. So I had to go through the planning process. Then I opened the doors and the um, fitness industry turned up and said, oh, you don't have a gym membership, a gym license. I'm like, oh, I better get one of those. So I sat to study at night and then I did that as well. So then we opened up and it was a good period. But then about six, eight weeks in, my father actually passed away. As I think you know, Adrian, it was a big um, milestone in my life and very challenging time. I lost my dad and three grandparents in the space of about two months. And yeah, it was one of those times I had a lot of debt. I had no money at the time. I'd borrowed 150 grand from the bank. And I borrowed 30 grand from my grandfather at 13% interest, mate. Cheaper. That was when he tried to speak. So maybe Merrick's looks cheap actually compared to that today. So I was sort of sitting there going, well, what do I do? I you know, literally could get bankrupted if I can't get myself out of this slump and get back into it. So I obviously made the decision to get back in there. And that has definitely been a huge part of my drive and my 
you know, inability to give up until I get where I need to get to because it was not, you know, it wasn't completely dire, but it was not a great situation. So really taught me around what I needed to do in business because I was training in the morning, training PT 5 till 10 in the morning and I was doing selling and book work from 10 till 3. I'd train myself at 3, then I'd train people 5 till 10 at night and that was six days a week. So it was it was intense, and but a great learning curve. Um, I then sold that business. I wanted to get back into property. I was out one night. I remember it like it was yesterday um, on the river. I remember that bar that was on the river down there near Crown and this girl said, I'm a development manager at FKP. I'm like, development manager? What's that? And she said, oh, I manage pro Projects. I'm like, oh, that's genius. I didn't even know that was possible. And so I eventually got a job at FKP. I was not suited for public companies. I think you know my personality well enough to know the compliance and rubbish you have to go through to get even an ad approved to sell a property that was important for revenue. I remember I just couldn't, just couldn't get my head around it at all. So very quickly after nine to 10 months, I was really hating it there is the honest truth. And I approached a guy called Maury Schwartz, who you know well, Maury at the time, I thought was a genius, to be honest. He, it was the time when everyone was doing, you know, every ad was 299 plus. It was the cheapest, smallest apartments physically possible. And this is a time when houses, you know, track mansions were three to $5 million. And I remember in St Kilda Road, there was this ad that said worth every million and it was apartments. And I thought, oh my God, this guy's just either completely mad and stupid or an absolute genius. And I called him up and said, hey, I'd really love to have a coffee. And um, he's like, oh, well, I don't really know anything about you. I've only ever employed one bloke in my life. Anyway, so we had a coffee and then after about 30 minutes, he said, all right, can you start tomorrow? And that was a sort of the big start of my, you know, my next journey. Maury to me has been by far the most important mentor in my life, without doubt. He's a incredibly beautiful human, taught me warmth, taught me ethics, but most importantly, taught me marketing and brand. You know, I think he's the best marketing brand guy in Australia that I've met. And he also taught me, you know, he gave me confidence and the ability to believe in myself that anything was possible. And I definitely didn't have that. I'm, I'm actually very pessimistic by nature. And Maury sort of just made me feel like I could achieve anything and not in an arrogant way, just in a, hey, you know, if it hasn't been done before, let's set a new path. Let's see what's possible. And you know, to this day, you know, every single time I have a major project that I'm stressed about, I'll go and see him, I have a coffee with him and I did it for St. Moritz and, you know, I had a few friends that you know well that were sort of suggesting St. Moritz was a bit of a bit of a punt at the time, you know, $136 million apartments in St Kilda. And, you know, I went and saw Murray's like, Tim, you are brilliant at this. This is the best vision I've ever seen. It's the best product. It's the best service. The market will love it. Get out there and do it walked into the display suite the next week and it was obviously a great success from there. But without that confidence and backing from him, it would have been a really challenging time. So I sort of worked with Murray for a long time. Um, then the GFC obviously hit. Murray was uh, probably a bit more optimistic than I was about the world. I thought it looked pretty bad and he thought he was going to be able to continue to do big towers. I thought the capital and debt markets looked pretty rough. So Danny and I, who was the other partner in Pan Urban, so obviously had a, a shareholding in Pan Urban with Danny Chiama. We then started a business called Urban Inc. And it was really, the theory was rather than doing one building of 300, we wanted to do 10 buildings of 30, have diversity across Melbourne, boutique play. It was a highly successful business. We had a great relationship with Danny. We had very different skill sets, which was awesome. And we did about 20, I think about 22, 23 projects through that period of time together. Anything from sort of 15 townhouses up to sort of 230 apartments. And my sort of vision on development and risk is quite different to others. I mean, my view on development risk is if you've got three or four projects and two get stuck in planning and one has a construction blowout, you're in a lot of trouble. 
Whereas we want 30 active projects the entire time. And if we can do that, if five or six go wrong, or there's a construction bloat, or there's a town planning problem, something else will fill the gap. So I'm a big believer that that diversity across our group allows us to sustain the tough times. And this is obviously an incredibly tough time, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but there's been a few others, right? 2017 was not fun. Maybe Tim, I'll interject there. You're one of the things that having known you since you, you know, working closely with Danny in particular, Danny being a good friend of mine and advisory board member at Merricks, and so it's sort of seen in your journey. I think one of the things that the two of you did differently to the rest of the world is sort of embark on partnerships, partnerships with landowners, partnerships with builders, partnerships with people like Johnny Mark, 360. Yeah. And it's allowed that breadth. And so it's quite a it's quite a different model. Yeah. And allowed, I think, to endure over a, a cycle. Re- remember clearly, you know, when you guys were building Oxley in, in Collingwood and, you know, it was tougher, certainly tough market then you know we probably had a great market between then and now and it's become tough again right but yeah. the partnerships and the style maybe just for listeners give sort of a sense of how you the breadth you have is partly driven by the, the relationships and clearly the magnitude of relationships you have today are quite different you know the institutional partners that you have today it's different yeah. and, and do you know what i, th- I think both Danny and I need to put that back to Mori again, right? So Mori was all relationship, right? So you had the Mori Schwartz family. Like when you worked with Mori, you were part of a family. You weren't working for him. It was this amazing unity. And what that allowed us to do is it wasn't just partnerships in terms of joint venture landowners. It was partnerships with lawyers, planners, you know, like Rob Kelderman has just retired from Contour, right? He's done every single one of my planning submissions since 2005. You know, these, you know, Maddox have done everything, ABL have done everything, Pitches have done everything. So we've been able to create these very strong relationships through trust and, you know, everyone helping each other out through different times. And then we've done a lot of, both of us have done a lot of landowner joint ventures and, and that's obviously come through, you know, a large percentage through the Jewish community in Melbourne. We've done a lot with Sikh community. We've got obviously the guy, Vietnamese guy, we did a lot with back in the Oxley days. So they've kind of been relationships where people have owned Large pay, large parcels of land that haven't owed them much, typically back from the rag trade. Adrian, you know, it was people that had, you know, I had to buy this warehouse because I had to store more boxes and I had to buy another warehouse, buy more boxes. And, you know, particularly Collingwood was an area that was very industrial and then suddenly it became worth a lot. They're sitting on these pieces of land. They, they can develop through us in a very tax effective structure that suits them. They take no risk, they employ us, and we're able to do what we do best, which is obviously market design, market deliver, and make profit for our partners. And it, it's been a highly successful model for everyone through that entire journey. It allows our partners to be a part of something, achieve a higher land price than they typically would and share in the profit 50-50 without taking any risk whatsoever. So it works well for them, for us, we have definitely made less than everyone else is is what I would say. So per project, we would make less, but it's much more defensive. So when the times get tough, we can sit there and we ride out the storm. Others might be shooting for gold every single year. And if the storm hits, they get hit by it, you know, whereas we sort of can sit back and watch what happens and hopefully take advantage of any dislocation in the market. But clearly what, um, what those partners are buying into is what you touched on earlier from young age, it's your vision and, and selling ability um, in terms to create a product that's, yeah. you know, I don't think I'm exaggerating. You'd be you know, in the top few in the country. How many how many apartments have you delivered over the last 15 years? Do you know what the number is? 
Well, I actually don't know what the number is, but it, but it would be a lot. Um, we've, we've got about 12,000 in the pipeline right now um, across about 28 jobs at the moment to hopefully new jobs will come into that portfolio in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's been a lot, mate, and it's been a lot from small projects to large and yeah, you know, I can assure you, not all of them have been good. You know, they've all been, they've all had their own challenges. They've all been difficult. But I think in our game, like I, I always talk about the feasibility developer and the design-led developer. And, you know, there's a few really good design-led developers in Australia. You know, Tim Forrester up in Brizzy is definitely one of the best. Michael Piccolo down here. Danny obviously does great stuff. You know, there's a few that are very passionate and travel the world trying to find the best designs to bring to Australia to create a brand that people want to follow. Then you've got the feasibility developers, which are, you know, whether they're funds, whether they're people that have sold businesses and think property development is a really profitable thing. Those people usually get found out through a cycle because if you're delivering rough average product that is just a box or a widget and you are selling widgets, it's a very, very hard game to play in when the market turns because your buyer doesn't really know what they're buying. They don't really care what they're buying. They're buying a spreadsheet and there's no emotional connection where we're very, very focused on that emotional connection as being a, a really key part of what we do. Yeah, so today you said you've got 28 projects and you know, 12,000 apartments to bring to market, which is quite a, an incredible number. Maybe you want to sort of touch on, you know, they probably fall in two categories, you know, build to sell. So what traditionally yeah. you know, traditional apartment development people buy them off the plan or when they complete, or you know the newer evolving model for like the build to rent, which is the partners where you intend to hold hold these. Yeah. Um, you can give some examples of recent, you know, the recent build to sell and where it's it's different. I guess the market and how you see that strategically. We'll we'll finish off at the end talking about the more short term, you know, sort of outlook. But it's more, yeah. I guess, when you go into these, you can't look at it on a short-term view. Absolutely, particularly major projects. So we're, we, what we've very focused, we've been very focused on doing is trying to create Gurner Group as the Goodman Group of residential, right? We want to be a fund manager of all things living residential. That's everything from wellness to hospitality to property management, building management, sales. And then in the development business, we have four different business units. So we've got boutiques. So we still do very small projects. We're about to launch a project of four high-end apartments, five luxury homes in Armadale. And people think we're mad doing that. But if we can do six or seven projects in that in that bucket, we can pretty much do that seven years out of a seven-year cycle. So for me, I'm focused on in se every seven years, we're going to have an event or two or three, depending on what's happening at the time. So for us, boutique, seven years out of seven years works. Mixed use is then sort of 150 apartments to 300, something relatively simple. That's probably where we make our most profit. So that's like a Victorian Vine as an example or an Albert Place. They, we can work kind of five to six years out of a seven-year cycle. Then we've got major projects. So that's your jam factories, that's your La Palagos, that's your Docklands. They are brutal. They are really hard. They are complex jobs. They're, you can shoot the lights out and you can spend seven years to make no money. And then we've obviously got built to rent. So built to rent is obviously pretty nascent in Australia, um, although we think it's going to be a ginormous market. When we started in 2020, at the start of COVID, we've been looking at it for quite a few years. I didn't think it worked when the built to sell market was firing, and I, I still stand by that. In 2021, I remember I did this interview and someone said, oh, is it going to be a big sector? I said, it completely depends on how quickly the economy and the market recovers. And if that recovers fast enough for investors, mum and dad investors to get back into the market to fix this supply, 
supply issue, then it won't be that big. But if it doesn't fix, built to rent will take over and it will completely consume the rental market. And that's exactly what's playing out now. So mum and dads are pretty much out of the market. There is no investors in the market. There's no Chinese investors in the market. Supply has obviously fallen off a cliff and built to rent for me has gone from something I was really interested in a diversity play to something I now believe will be a gigantic part of our business. I think, Adrian, the only thing, and we, you and I have talked about this in the past, is there's huge misconceptions on what built to rent is and how much capital there is for it, right? Everyone says there's capital everywhere and there's developers doing it everywhere. There's probably four people in Australia that have actually raised capital for built to rent. You know, if you've raised $20 million, it's not that's not built to rent, right? That's wasting your time. Like you can't, you've got to get to five to 10,000 apartments to make this a model worthwhile. So Grocon's raised money. We've obviously raised money. Mervac look like they have finally raised after a couple of attempts. Novus obviously did a small raise. So there's there's probably five or six players realistically. And then there's a lot of capital talking about it that have not activated yet in the space. So we have a huge supply issue coming up, which we'll talk about. And everyone thinks built to rent is the answer. Right now there's eight and a half thousand apartments in the built to rent pipeline. It is tiny. Right, it is so small. We've got three thousand six hundred, and then probably the next biggest to be Grocon there as well. But you know, Australia needs hundreds of thousands, not eight to ten thousand. And do you want to just talk a little bit about um, your first project, you know, Beach House, which I think you know, is your partnership with Qualitas, backed by a big institutional investor at St Kilda Junction, that's coming up to completion. Yeah, so we've got four that will be in construction this year. So Beach House was the first one that started. City Road is now up to level two of a 40-storey tower. So that's 400 apartments in South Melbourne. And then we've got Parramatta, which is a 60-storey tower. We just got approved going to tender. And then we've got Queen's Parade, which just starts demo next week. So they are all going to construction. Beach House is about a third of the way up the structure now. It'll complete early next year. And, you know, it's interesting. People say we, we had this big debate around built to rent, whether we want to do it or not from a brand perspective. And, you know, the biggest conversation was we cannot bring any product into the market that doesn't stand by our brand principles and keeping it at the level we want to, right? And my answer to the team simply at the time was it's very simple. We only do good product. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing built to rent, if they're going basic, if they're going cheap, we stick to our rules. We stick to our amenity rules, our service rules, our design rules. And Beach House, although it is seen as a cheaper option than St. Moritz, it will have a lot of the similar look and feel. It'll smell the same. The temperature will be the same. The, the finishes will look the same. They'll be a porcelain, not a natural. So it's still a a beautiful product and we're focused on the lifestyle element of built to rent as opposed to the feasibility basis because interestingly people think design in built to sell is more important design in built to rent is way more important right because built to sell you're selling apartments all over the place people don't really know what they're buying they can't really see it they can't touch it they don't know if you can fit bedside tables either side of a bed or not they don't know if there's a cutlery drawer or a place for a microwave when a tenant or client walks into our buildings they can see everything Right? Do the beds feel too tight? Is there a spot for them to put their microwave? Like, design is way more important in built to rent than it is in built to sell, in my view. So, maybe give some um, some background. You mentioned the St. Mary's a couple of times. It's probably you know, been the, an unparalleled development in Melbourne in terms of you know, one groundbreaking, I think, the location. Lots of people sort of question going back you know, the, the rejuvenation of St. Kilda. Could you achieve the price points? Could you get this type of buyer that is going to want to live in what it's say is an uber luxury environment? Let me just tell the listeners a little bit about the journey. It's saying, yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate that I my first ever business was in St Kilda. My first ever property was in St Kilda. I've always been a big fan of St Kilda. And for me, it's, you know, it was the 
playground of the rich and famous back in the day. It's it's a beautiful location. It's got probably one of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. Do you think about beachside locations that close to the centre of the CBD in the world? There aren't many, right? So it's got a huge opportunity to do something really, really special. And, you know, we're sitting on top of the hill there. Greg Shand came to me and asked if I wanted to joint venture the site with him. My view straight away was it could hold something very different to what all the other plans were. Everyone was sort of 250 apartments, smaller apartments. We had this concept to do 130 super high-end luxury apartments. And, and our pitch was we weren't pretending St Kilda's perfect, right? It was never about that. It was about we're going to create this very private, secure sort of haven for you to drive in the front door. Doesn't matter what's around you, right? So you're going to drive in, you're going to drive into a mini, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be a full six-star lifestyle experience. And then when you get into your apartment, you're looking at views that no one else can offer. You know, we're on top of the hill, looking straight out over the water, over the pier or north over the CBD. And people understood it. I mean, we we spent a lot on, you know, display cost us about five million bucks. We spent about another three on marketing and renders because we knew we had to really explain to people that this was something different. It was something that hadn't been done before. We went through a full custom process, so every single buyer fully customised their homes, which was a complete uh, nightmare to manage, but I'm really proud that we did it. My team did an amazing job. And it's a it's a really, really special, beautiful place. And it's, it's not special and beautiful because we've got the best Calcutta Goldstone, thousands of metres of it. It's the best place because it's got this beautiful feel. Like it's just got this warmth. You've been through there. You know, everyone there's this great sense of community. There's beautiful service. It smells right. It feels right. It just makes you feel great. I had dinner last night with one of the um, owners in the building. <laughs> I can guess who that is. And um, loves living there and to watch an experience. And, and I think the uh, he's commented on in his and he's in the property game, you know, incredible building. The sales really were you know, incredible what you guys achieved in terms of getting buyers to share the vision. But, you know, the, the level of detail which you personally were involved in, how do you scale that over 12,000 apartments? Like, is that really, is that That's really, and, and maybe not doing justice to the rest of your team. I know this big team, yeah. but personally uh, are involved. To, yeah, it's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a really good question and it's a, it's a question I'm um, working a lot on. So what I've done over the years, the best thing, this, by far the best thing I've done in my business career is work out the things that consume all my time and then find the best in market to replace me that are better at them. So Alex Finn was Ellenberg Fraser, best commercial architect I've ever met, hands down. Right, so I've got him in here now. He runs all plans. He did with that client you're talking about there. He did his exact floor plan down to where the microwave sat, down to cutlery drawers, down to everything. He's way better at it than me, and he also understands how to deal with people. I used to spend hours and hours and weeks on renders. So now I've got Simon Brugaletta, who is you know, a Milan interior designer. We found him online just absolutely next level in terms of the quality of what he can create. Brought him into the team. Now he takes me off that. Delivery-wise, I have, you know, led by James Roberts and Rob Clark. I mean, I've got the best delivery team going around. I don't need to go to site very often. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that that part of the business now is very well under control. I really don't have to do much in the built-to-rent or built-to-sell space. I probably get down there once a month, once every two months. Obviously, through COVID, it was incredibly challenging. We had five buildings under construction. We settled five buildings through COVID, which was brutal, but... My team did an unbelievable job. I mean, we've got 
220 people in the in the group now and there's 85 in the property business of those 85 there's probably been 35 that have been here for eight to ten years and that is the core that is the key um you know we've got people that i get a high level deal done they document it they've got people you know numbers from an analytical perspective and i think you've hopefully experienced that too you know the team that run that you know led by rachel harkins are 50 times better than me right she's an absolute genius the you know the btr team and you know you've seen a btr model it's 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 big and it's complex and you move one thing and the whole thing breaks or makes and you know, their skill sets there are next level. Just uh, talking about St. Moritz, you talked about major projects as being brutal in different parts of the, the cycle. It's a term used before, it's a term I've had you use several months back. We were talking about these things. Clearly, it's taken longer than you expected. And I think that's, you know, incredible sales, incredible products. The time's never the friend on build to sell, is it? Yeah, in terms of getting there and getting, getting to the end. And that's part of. Yeah. challenge in these in these big you know, huge projects and i think look st roots to us is just a major project it's not quite big enough to be in the kind of major project world but st roots when we started construction we were 12 months in when COVID hit and crema were probably two months ahead of time so we were going to deliver those apartments in october you know before christmas to get everyone in they were so excited we're all so excited the numbers are great the sales were done design was incredible and COVID completely shafted us. I mean, Crema have done a sensational job. Like I think just to go to relationships of people like Crema, like it's delivered 133 custom apartments through COVID and not only walk out the other end really proud of each other and done a great job together, but to award them another two jobs gives you a good indication of, you know, their ethics and culture and how they run their business. It's, you know, that process could have been a complete and utter disaster. You know, like we were a very difficult client. We changed a lot. Our purchases changed a lot. 60 mil worth of variations. It was a very difficult process. And, and obviously that time eats up money, as you know. Great for Merrick's, not that you funded that one, but great for you when things go longer, but not so great for us. But again, it comes back to the diversity piece. I mean, we have never, we have been very particular since the day we started to not to have, ever have to rely on project profit to keep the business going. You know, if you're reliant on the profit coming out of a project to fund the next one, you're stuffed before you start because sometimes they go better and you make more and they're shorter, but most of the time they take longer and they don't make quite as much as you think. So, you know, it's just being just being very eyes wide open to the fact that things change, you know, all the time. So Tim, I want to talk about two forward looking projects. You suggested I go and look at La Palago in on the Gold Coast. It's a, a partnership you have with with Wingate, uh, you know, Wingate own the land and and she did sort of come in and create a provision. I've got to say, the display suite blew my mind, right, in terms of getting there. And Evan heads up tales for you at the, the time, giving me the, the tour. And it's a little bit cynical of the, what I was going to see, but the vision was captivating. And I guess it doesn't really matter what, what I think ultimately, but the sales, again, blew my mind. So that project, you've sold an incredible amount. And you, you, know, you talked earlier saying sales are difficult and sales are tough, yet you're actually achieving sales on mm. projects. Do you want to think, give the listeners a little, give a description of that project and the vision for it? Yeah, I think, so just to clarify, I don't think sales are hard. It's, fortunately for us, sales aren't hard. That's not our That's not our issue. Fortunately, our brand has got the power to get through most of the cycles. It's all the other pieces at the moment. It's construction, it's interest, et cetera, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, La Plaga, so it's a location that is a, it's not beachfront, you know, it's not 
absolute AAA prime um, single floor plates. And you know, where we have been different to others is we've been able to take locations like that and create a vision that is a centerpiece and a driver of people to a place. I wouldn't have gone and done there I wouldn't have gone there and done 100 apartments. We wouldn't be able to have an effect. We wouldn't be able to change location. So we had to have a big parcel of land. It's 13,000 metres of land, which is obviously huge. And it allows us to create this epicentre of luxury. So for me, I'm actually funny. I don't like sand. I'm really funny about sand on my feet. So for me, I'm happy to go for a walk in the morning, take the kids to the beach, but I want to sit by the pool, have a drink, have some food. So for me, it kind of made sense. You've got JW Marriott 100 metres away, which is the highest grossing hotel on the Gold Coast, even though it's 40 years old. So all those pieces kind of made a lot of sense to me, like Fortitude Valley when we did it back in 2013. Lots of people thought we were mad, but for me, it was 50 metres from the main train station, surrounded by the three most expensive suburbs, and it kind of just made sense. I think vision, I've just got a thing which I just sort of assumed everyone had, which is when I see that site, I could see it. Like I could immediately see how the towers worked, how that position, how the arrival experience would feel. And I just knew we could do something special there. St. Regis was a big part of it. I wanted to get a very important hotel. Um, so we've got 170 rooms. St. Regis, their first time coming to Australia. And that will be a big centrepiece. It'll be a draw card and it will allow the place to really be busy and keep the retail and hospitality busy. The sales, we haven't announced how we've gone yet, but it, as you know, it's been, a, it's been a very successful launch. I don't think there would have been many in the Gold Coast that have gone like this. It's been quite incredible. And now the challenge is construction, right? Construction up there is beyond difficult. I've never seen anything like it in my life. There aren't many big builders that can deliver that anyway. And then the government came out and put 22 hospitals into the market in February, which is about $8 billion worth of work and have pretty much blown up the trade market. So you will see me discussing in the media what the Queensland government is doing to that market up there at the moment in the next couple of weeks, because they are literally destroying their own market with stupidity. And I'm really, really frustrated by it. So in terms of um, in terms of that project, it's really a about making the, the cost work, isn't it? You know, it's it's not even a, I, th I think we'll get the cost and the feasibility to work. It's Does a builder want to take the risk? That's the biggest issue. It's not with our structure, the way it's set up. I think we're fine from a feasibility perspective. It's actually, does a multiplex Hutchies icon, are they willing to take the risk on the trades when they don't know how many of these hospitals actually happen? Is there enough labour in Queensland to conduct all these hospitals? That's the conversations we're having. It's not, the commercials are kind of the, you know, almost the next stage to can any job in Queensland right now be delivered? And that's a very alarming comment because I can tell you most, as you know, have been pulled. Most jobs aren't going ahead. You know, if we can't start with the amount of yield we have and the price points we have and the structures we have, then that is a very bad indication for where Queensland's happening. And you know, we will get ours to start, but it is going to be not easy at all. I think that's fair. Obviously, your ability to sell and the price point achieved in whatever category you're in is, is going to be at the, you know, has been at the upper end. That's the, the proof rather than just stating where you're, you're going to be. So, yeah, it's, it's worrying. Mm. We um, A few weeks ago, the major non-bank lenders and the commercial banks all met with the, the six or seven biggest vertical builders, and they were really asking the question about the ability to move away from fixed-price contracts. They said, just mm. doesn't work. We can't do it. We need risk-sharing. We need to operate like Canada. We need to operate yeah, more like the civil-type industry with you know, government partnerships on a, a sort of rise-and-fall type basis. And I think everyone went away scratching their heads saying, we get it, but none of them are making any material money, if making money at all. 
It won't happen. I, I'm I'm a strong believer it won't happen here. I mean, those those markets are so different, right? The development margins are so different. The builders, you know, like I say to the builders all the time, if you want me to share your risk, I'm going to take your profit. So at some point, a developer like me, if a builder's saying, I'm, I want I want you to share the risk, I'm just going to do it myself. Like, what do you need a builder for? I mean, most of them are literally just managing trades anyway. They're not actually building much. We don't have big margins. I guess that's the, yeah, as a financier, they, they, yeah, they, don't, they also don't, I mean, they're a cash flow business, right? They don't need, you know, they're not an equity heavy business. So look, I, I'm not at all taking away from how difficult it is for builders. It's been brutal, but let's let's just be clear. Every market's different, right? Melbourne is now stable, right? Melbourne is in a really good place. The builders are hungry for work. The trades are hungry for work and it's stabilised. There is no problem in Melbourne. Sydney will be the same in a couple of months. Perth and Queensland are a basket case, right? They are completely different. South Australia is completely fine and they need work. So it's not a broad brush approach. So we've just done it, gone to tender on Queen's Parade. Hickory will probably build that job and it'll be a fixed price contract, full risk on them exactly as it is. Same thing in Sydney with our Parramatta job. It's just Queensland. You know, it's not even about the builders wanting to take risk. It's do they believe that the trades will be able to deliver the job? That's the big question, right? Are there enough people on the ground to actually deliver it? So I just think, you know, if it, a fundamental change in risk dynamic. Yeah, th- those conversations I've, I've heard, I just don't believe because there's not enough margin on our side either to make that work. Like, it just won't work. No, the parallel in the US having operated there, I lived there for a decade, that most developers are taking 30% margin. Correct. Plus or minus 20% variation in cost. Exactly. That's, and that's exactly the point, right? So I'm, I, if I can make 30 to 35% margins on cost, I'll become a builder. Right? But you're not. Like, I mean, we're not, you know, if you're getting to mid-20s now, you're doing really, really well. You know, that's, that's just where the market is. And we've got to remember, costs have jumped 25 30% in two years and revenue hasn't moved yet. So you don't need to be a genius to know feasibilities are under immense pressure. If you don't have the brand to be able to sell in the eighteen to thirty thousand a meter mark in Melbourne or the forty to sixty thousand a meter mark in Sydney, I, I don't think you're selling anything this year. It's going to be very hard. So it's a good segue. Um, we obviously have a, a partnership where we're the, the senior debt on um, the Jam Factory project, which you in partnership with New Quality House and developing the back half of the project, the yep. and, and Resi. Um, tell listeners a little bit about that project and sort of the vision and, and timing. When you say the back half, you mean the hero location, the private secluded north-facing views to the CBD. Is that what you meant by the back half? Yeah, there's the difference between the money guy who just <laughs> <laughs> and the vision guy yeah. who's, you know, who's basically saying he's absolutely right. I mean, you know, where would people want to live? They want to live in the, the quiet piece at South Yarra. Not- so I'm going I'm to sell you. I'm going to sell you one yet. Yeah, don't worry. No, look, I mean, that, that's a great example of where, I think it's a good example of where the finance market is as well, right? So we didn't even talk to the banks there, as you know, you know, we wanted to do it with you, you know, I think in that land holding, but also even in the development space now, you know, the likes of Merrick's and there's a couple others, probably, of course, not as good as you, Adrian, that are now ultra competitive, you know, by the time you take wherever the banks are in an LVR position and you blend in MES or whatever you need to do to get to a similar level as what you could get to, you know, you guys are incredibly competitive and that is very different to three years ago, even probably two years ago. 
And I think the amount of capital in your space now has really changed the sector. So, you know, Jam Factory, prime example of something that's set up perfectly for you, obviously, with a large commercial of office and retail. Our portion's probably a little bit easier from a debt perspective because our built to sell, we expect to sell out very, very fast. Look, Jam, I mean, I, I people think I sound silly because every time I launch a project, it's I say it's my favorite project, but I actually feel like that. You know, Jam is a very, very important project for me, for Melbourne, for our team, for our partnership. You know, we feel a lot of responsibility on that side. It's a very important Melbourne icon that needs to be something special. It is the rebirth of Chapel Street. It will completely reborn, you know, that whole Chapel Street precinct, which it deserves. And, you know, 18,000 metres of land in Melbourne's second most expensive suburb doesn't come around very often. So we are incredibly excited about it. As you know, we have an amazing vision, obviously new market at the front doing the retail commercial and partnership with us at the residential. We've got a you know very high-end hotel coming in the base of our building as well, just to take it to another level. And we will be going ultra high-end. It will be um, as high-end as St. Ritz, if not higher. And I'm very pumped about it and we'll be we'll be launching at the end of the year. So there'll be a few more details coming out, but we, we have a very large database of people there that want to get into that. So whether it even actually hits the market, I'm not sure, because we'll be taking through friends and family and past clients first, and we expect it to go very well. It looks an interesting project. Merrick's, you know, we've gone out of our way to fund a number of the developments with commercial and resi that are now basically sit near or on top of some of the new key train stations. And I think with the, the metro tunnel you know, coming into fruition and, and you know, things being the train station at South Yarra and the like, I think the amount of that, that will precinct is, is going to be special. And I think that's the difference in terms of, I guess it's always location is the property. It's general location and vision, definitely. Like you can, you, know, you could go into Jam Factory and completely stuff it up too. Like it's not, you know, it's not an easy site. It's big. It's got the train line. It doesn't have many access points. It's it's definitely complex. And look, all those big jobs, like I said before, like they're brutal because they're so complex, right? Even the demolition of Jam Factory is complex. You know, the heritage elements, how do you get the stuff out? You know, you've got one little side straight train line next door. But to be honest, you know, you know me, I, I just love that challenge it's like trying to run 50 marathons not that i'm trying to do that but try to achieve the impossible and gives us something to really chase after so just to to finish off when you bring jam factory to market at the end of the year what's your expectation in terms of sales cycle like you said sales really aren't necessarily the problem because you've created brand and database and how you market Oh, we're very, very confident on that. So any, anything AAA grade prime that can't be replaced, um, I think the market is really deep. I think the, if you spoke to me three months ago or four months ago, I would have said we were down 8.9% across Australia. I thought we had another 10% to go. I thought we'd drop 20% and I would have thought that's probably okay. That's probably what the market needed to do to sort of reset itself. But what has been unbelievable is this gigantic undersupply that everyone's completely, you know, we have not realised the extent of it. We certainly didn't know there was 890,000 people coming in the next two years. And that has just shown this incredible strength underlying the market. I mean, our Residential prices should be going down. They should definitely be going down with the cost of living going up so much. And it just shows you the resilience of the purchaser under there. And I think, you know, the, obviously the, the mortgage belt is getting hit harder without any doubt. And there's a lot of pressure in some of those areas. But try to buy a house for 20 to 100 million bucks in Turak or South Yarra. Just good luck. You know, you're going to be competing against 10 people and high-end apartments are exactly the same. So I think that sort of five mil plus market, I think is probably 
not never been stronger because the Chinese aren't here as strong as what they were, but it's got to be right up there with the 2014-15 sort of period we had. And yeah, I think for us, it's if you're selling a product that can be done again, like if you're selling a typical apartment for 900 grand and they can drop another 3,000 around you, I think it's almost impossible. It's very, very difficult. But if you're doing the one-off jam factory where there is four apartments in this price range, in this size, in that building with that amenity, that service on top of that hotel, connected to village, connected to the retail, there's one opportunity in the next 50 years. And if you want to get it, you better jump on it. And I think that AAA location and you know scarcity is very real. You know, it's the same St. Ritz. Like St. Ritz wasn't for everyone. You know, like a lot of people came across from Turak South Yarra and it wasn't for them. Turak was still the number one purchasing suburb though, which is really interesting. So, you know, I think in Jam, we won't have that pushback um, of the general location. And by the way, there's heaps of heaps. There's probably 70% of St. Moritz who would never buy in South Yarra Turak, right? They don't want to be associated with Turak. So everyone's different. But I think the great thing about South Yarra is it's it will attract everyone. It will get every different person. And to sit on the amenity that's going to be delivered between the retail, commercial and our actual amenity is going to be absolutely first class and it'll be like nothing else in the world. Yeah, it's no doubt. I mean, the, the sales that you guys and a few others, the Michael Piccolo's of the world, who had special products, they're selling incredible, I guess. Yeah. We'll, we'll wait to see. You know, there's only really a couple of builders that can, can build Jam again. So that's going to be interesting to see. And that that unfolds. So we are we are in ECI exclusively with multis. Multis we want to build the job. The job is made for them. I mean, Icon could definitely do the job as well. Potentially, Robert's good in the future. But we want multis to build it. That is definitely our intent. We have you know they're very very keen to build it. It's the perfect job for them at the perfect time. So we're not hiding the fact that we want them to be the builder and they're the right builder for it. They need to get to our price, right? So that's going to be the key process over the next four to six months. But I think it's good timing, right? The you know, multiplex on average have 22 jobs a year for the last 10 years. They've got two right now in Melbourne. So we've got to be, people got to be really careful about the scary stories that are coming out of other states. Melbourne is a very different place. It's, you know, the builders are very, very keen for work. We have a highly sophisticated union. We have a highly sophisticated trade market. This is the place where you want to build if you're going to build anywhere. Well, um, on that note, Tim, I think we've run out of time. So thanks for your uh, ongoing partnership and, and thanks for your time today. I think our listeners can enjoy listening to your journey and maybe you'll um, encourage a few to get along and um, line up for the uh, display suite at Jam Factory. So you sold me. I was reluctant on one. Maybe I'll buy two. Yeah, exactly. And thank you for the support, mate. We, it's not something we could do without Merrick. So really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Good on you. Cheers, mate. Merrick's Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com.